Oath Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Friends and listeners, and welcome to episode 9 of season 9. A double niner here today. And today is Sunday, November 13 of 2022. It is my great pleasure to have you here on the Thought Hermes podcast. My name is Rudolf. I am your host. And it is my great pleasure not only to welcome you, but to welcome somebody very special here today as my guest on this episode, Voter J. Honeygraf, who is a very, very well-known academic um, in the field of the Western esoteric tradition, and I'm extremely honored to have him here on the show. More about that in a minute. Now it's to welcome for you, for you listeners who are here with us for the first time. Uh, welcome first timers and I hope you will enjoy this podcast and not only listen to this one and only episode, but also to all the others, about 150 that you can find online on all major podcast outlets, but also, and I want to stress that, go on the website, go on the thoughthermes.com website, T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com, that is. Because not only you can download or listen, stream to all those episodes there as well, but you also have those very nice, many of them are very nice show notes with more information. You can have links there, you find your way to more information about the talks and about the topics that we talk about on this podcast. And of course, you can also leave me messages there. You have a contact form there. You have a link to the email info at thoughttherapies.com. And you can even leave a voicemail. I love your feedback. So please come with your feedback to me and I will be happy to get your opinion, your criticism, your ideas. That's always great. And your music. More about that in one moment. To all of you who are here, not for the first time, but returning customers, Great to have you back. It's so wonderful to have you with me here today. And I'm sure you're going to enjoy this episode once again very much because Walter Honeygraf is really extremely knowledgeable and interesting personality. I would also like to thank those of you who are patrons of this show and give all of those two of you who are not yet patrons a little bit of bad consciousness because um, it's those people, those few people who make this happen and make it possible for all others of you. So if a few more of those others could also become patrons, that would be nice. On the website, you have the Patreon button. Consider going there and click on it and become a patron by $1 per show already. You are with us and you can also do a donation. And I have had two donations this week. Thank you very much. Very, very grateful for that. And um, well, please, um, please consider becoming a patron or a donor of this show. We need your support to maintain this show as it is. Okay, great. Um, 
I was just mentioning music a moment before. Um, today we are not going to have music by our listeners because um, it's my guest here and I, we discussed the music. Uh, he was a musician initially and so that that's what gave us the idea. But um, next show in any case and probably the following as well um i will have music from listeners who came up lately again with new music from them by them for this show and this is always great so if you're a musician who is interested in the western esoteric tradition and who packs some of it in your music please do come up with it and send it to me let me know and i will be happy to play it on the show it's great to have that so, um, well, let's go into music now right away, the first piece. But as I said, not by, not by uh, uh, somebody uh, here, uh, one of the listeners, but rather by Johannes Brahms. Yes, it's classical music. Two out of the three pieces are classical music here today. And um, this uh, first recording is a ballad, ballad number four by Johannes Brahms by an extremely talented but disappeared young artist Pierre Alain Volandat. He is French and in the early 70s at the, um, I think it was, well, uh, in the early 70s, I don't want to say more, he was playing and winning the Queen Elizabeth competition, one of the major music, classic music competitions and as a pianist. And um, uh, my guest, he pointed me to that and it's really a great a great recording it's a live recording so and from the 70s so you will hear a bit of a you know those those old tapes they have a, that kind of hum and you hear the audience a little bit in background coughing from time to time but that makes it a nice life experience so without further ado let's listen to Brahms ballad number four um, and it will be played by Pierre Alain Volontat who unfortunately has kind of disappeared as far as I know, but he, he used to be a great, great talent. Enjoy.
Pierre Alain Volonda with Brahms's Ballade number four, a special wish by my guest today, Wouter J. Hanegraaf. And I must uh, make a little correction. Uh, Mr. Volonda, the pianist you were just listening to, he is has not disappeared at all. He is still teaching at the Conservatoire de Montmorency, it says, and this recording was from 1983. Um, and not late 70s. So excuse me for that, but I corrected it. He was 21 back then. So uh, quite amazing. And he's now 60 years old, um, has mostly been teaching recently and a little less in the concert field. That's why we, maybe why I thought uh, he was no more active, but he is. Okay, so now let's go to somebody who is really very active. Professor Dr. Wouter J. Honeygraf, who is at the University of Amsterdam, uh, teaching history of hermetic philosophy and related currents, but who is much more than that, who has basically given to academia and to scholarship in the field of the Western tradition an extraordinary boost. I mean, he is the specialist nowadays, the name in the field of academia, uh, a reference and you can't pass by him in that field. And I was very, very pleased and honored that he accepted to come on this show. And um, honestly, he had so many things to say. And it was such an interesting talk also about his personal background, his youth, how it became all interesting for him, why he started those studies. Um, I don't want to keep you any longer. I don't think it makes sense to read from any of his publications, but you should read some of his publications because, um, and I link them in the show notes. Please absolutely go to the show notes. There are two or three things which I find particularly interesting, which I linked in the show notes on the website. So don't miss out on that. Uh, there is uh, a text that he read at uh, a German uh, uh, at the, in, in front of German politicians recently. So really highly interesting. Um, but now before you go and read, go and listen. We're now going to Amsterdam directly, meet Professor Hanegraaf. And uh, well, I can only say, enjoy that. Here comes the interview. It is not only a pleasure, but a great honor for me today to have a very special guest here on the Thos Hermes podcast. And I welcome Professor Wouter Hanegraaf from the University of Amsterdam. And uh, Wouter, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you for your time and for being ready to come on my yes, podcast. And thank you very much for the invitation. It's uh, very nice to be here. So I look forward to this. Well, thank you. Well, I do not have to introduce you to my listeners here. Of course, my listeners, a lot, a lot of authors, practitioners and 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 um, quite knowledgeable people of the Hermetic Sciences are here as listeners on the podcast. And everybody knows Walter Honeygraf because, well, um, I would not only call him one of the leading scholars, but to me personally, he is the leading scholar in regards to hermetic sciences, hermetic practices, etc. And um, um, he shakes his head, but I, be, I believe I'm right anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, Walter, um, before we go into the subject as such in the study of religions and spirituality, and where we'll define all that, um, 
It would be nice to hear a little bit, if you want, and as far as you wish, to go into your personal background, where it all started, because um, I guess you did not just out of the blue come to the idea, well, now I will do, uh, I will uh, become a scholar for this very particular subject. How got you interested in that? What happened to you in the early years, yeah. so to speak? Yeah. Well, thank you for the question. It's not a question I can answer very easily, so it will take a little bit of time to explain, uh, if that's okay. Um, you know, sometimes sometimes I hear recently, I heard somebody say again uh, somewhere that, oh, you know, if scholars tell you that they are not involved in this for personal reasons, for practitioners' reasons, then they are not telling the truth. Uh, that is, uh, I, I hear that sometimes. And nevertheless, I am telling the truth. Uh, in, my, in my case, it isn't for that reason. <laughs> so uh, really, you have to believe me. Um, and I got into this field uh, out of um, intellectual curiosity. Um, and what happened basically is that I think it has a personal background. I, you know, I was raised in the family of a minister. My father was a Protestant minister. So you... I raised with the idea that religion is important somehow, um, but at the same time, the kind of religion that I was um, I was introduced to was not to my taste, so to speak. I just didn't feel yeah, that, that didn't you know I that well it didn't impress me. I, I but at the same time, uh, while I was growing up, I found that when it comes to questions of things that give meaning to life, eh? as religion is, is supposed to give meaning to life. I didn't find that in the kind of theology and Christianity that I was raised with, but I did find it in music and I find it in, I found it in literature and in poetry and uh, in art. Uh, that had kind of a depth, a kind of a meaning that uh, I was missing elsewhere. So, so first uh, I was really getting into art and literature and I began to think about what is it that, um, why, why is it that, that art and music and literature and so on, uh, give you a sense of meaning and fulfillment, you know, in a way that established religion doesn't, at least not for me, in a way that also science and, uh, standard philosophy, rational philosophy doesn't really, what is it that it has to offer? Mm -hmm. So that is how I got into, uh, my explorations. And, um, an important point for me came when, I encountered a small book published in uh, in Dutch. Uh, it's not well known. It's not a particularly good book either, but it had a good title. It was uh, edited by uh, Gilles Quispel, the very well-known specialist of Gnosticism and so on, Dutch scholar. And uh, the book was called Gnosis, the third component of the uh, Western cultural tradition, if I have it right. So, and so the very simple thesis was that there is rationality and science on one hand as a kind of a pillar of Western society and Western culture. And then you have, um, then you have religion, uh, theology, etc. Well, those things I knew very well, but then he said there was a third component. He called it gnosis and I got curious. And at first thing, first I thought, well, you know, if there is this third component that might help me understand why I think that music and literature and poetry and those kind of things have meaning and give you a kind of knowledge, a kind of an insight uh, that they help you understand uh, the world in a better way. Knowledge, understanding, gnosis. So 
so that is how I got curious, basically. Uh, and um, so then I started uh, discovering all these Gnostic traditions, all these traditions of Gnosis, etc. So, but what really did it then? Uh, I was studying. I was at the University of Utrecht, and um, I was just basically trying to find my way. Uh, and I, you know. I was really a bit like walking with a lantern in the darkness and try to fight my way. And I w didn't really know where to go. Uh, one day I was in the catacombs of the university library in Utrecht University. And um, as so often I was looking for a book in the library and uh, there was another book standing next to it, uh, which I picked up just out of curiosity. And that really set me on the path of uh, what, I, what I've been doing the rest of my life. And that was a German book. Uh, by uh, Will Erich Poitert, uh, and uh, who was an yeah an important uh, specialist of folklore and of esotericism, as I now call it, uh, in the earlier part of the 20th century. Uh, and and this book was called Pan Sophie, eine Geschichte der weißen und schwarzen Magie. Pan Sophie, a history of white and black magic. Pan Sophie, and of it course, was yes. it was written in a very uh, somewhat poetic, not not such an academic way, although he was a great scholar, but, uh, but the way he wrote was poetic, uh, unusual, strange, very, you know, it's, yeah, it spoke to me. And he talked about, uh, people I'd never heard about. So uh, Marsilio Ficino, the translator of the Corpus Hermeticum in the 15th century, Pico Deli Mirandola, the founder of Christian Kabbalah. I'd never heard of those people. Uh, Paracelsus, uh, Jacob Böhme, uh, so all these earlier modern, so this was not modern, uh, not contemporary stuff. This was really earlier modern stuff. And I was, I was a bit shocked and offended almost by the fact that uh, at school and in my upbringing at universities, I'd never heard of those people and why, and they were so fascinating and I wanted to know more about them and they resonated with clearly, very clearly with my interest in literature, in music, in art there was something like a sensitivity for those kind of things there much more clearly than in the kind of rational philosophy I was used to, or in the theology I was used to for my upbringing. And so, yeah, so there was a resonance that resonated with each other. So, so that is how I started my explorations. So I basically thought, well, uh, I want to know more about this. Then I uh, started talking with other professors, uh, with professors that I was, uh, I was, uh, I, was I was studying with, and then I found that everybody told me, oh, yeah, this stuff, it does exist. Yeah, it has a bit. I don't know anything about it. So maybe you should talk with somebody else. And then I went to this other guy and who told me the same thing. I don't know about it. Maybe you should talk with someone else. So it became clear that they were tossing it, you know, around like a hot potato, basically. And no, nobody knew mm -hmm. about it. So, and then, you know, I was young and enthusiastic and I, I had discovered this treasure house of unknown things, uh, things that nobody seemed to talk about. And of course, yeah, then you think, okay, I'm going to do it. I want to find out about this thing. There's an uh, empty space here that I want to fill. And that's basically what happened. Um, so I was just deeply curious. And so, yes, this did not come from a kind of practitioner's perspective. I had no interest in becoming an esotericist or an occultist or anything like that. I've never had uh, interest in that, uh, but um, mm -hmm. but I've been uh, but I wanted to know about all the stuff that I had not been told about, and uh, and I felt there are these big white spaces, these empty 
com- the empty spaces on the map uh, of my culture, of the culture I come from that I have not been told about and I want to know about it. Well, finally, so that is, that is where my interest come from and then came from, but then I had to make some pragmatic choices because I wanted to pursue uh, research. I wanted to write a dissertation. Uh, and I probably, if I'd followed my interest, I'd written a dissertation about Paracelsus or Jakob Boehm or one of those people. Uh, but in order to get funding for research that was very unlikely to be successful. So I uh, ended up writing a dissertation about the new age movement. And this was the 1990s, also something that we tend to forget now. In the 1990s, new age was hot. It was very, um, uh, very popular. Nowadays, it has just become, you know, it is not very uh, a big topic of discussion, but at that time it was. And um, so there were these new age bookshops that were popping up and I will, I would go in there and I was just walking around and just asking, what is all this? Uh, you know, mm. Eastern teachers, gurus, uh, occultism, esotericism, shamanism, whatever. I had no idea what it was all about. And I, I yeah, it's just, you know, my basic drive is curiosity, always. I want to know, I want to find out. And that's what I want to find out. So, so basically what I ended up doing, I ended up moving to the contemporary period, uh, reading uh, hundreds of uh, new age books, try to find out what these people were saying. And then I wanted to place them in an historical context to say, okay, where does this come from? And this allowed me to delve more deeply into the history of uh, Western esotericism and to see what happens in the um, uh, transmission of traditional esoteric and occult and other uh, ideas. Uh, How does that get transmitted and reinterpreted uh, in contemporary uh, society, uh, resulting in what we now call the new age. So that's just really what uh, what I was interested in, and that's that's what I did. So that is how I got into this whole field, uh, and of course, then I got uh, exposed to all this, uh, yeah, all these contemporary uh, movements and, mm. and traditions, which were fascinating as well, and I didn't know anything about either. Uh, so. Um, yeah, so that is my trajectory in a nutshell. That, that's fascinating. Well, there are two or three little questions that rose up while you were speaking for me. Um, you're Dutch, so I suppose your your religious uh, household back then was Calvinist, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, and so when you say that you were fascinated by literature, music, etc., that's exactly what the severe Calvinism, so to speak, wants to ban, at least out of the religious perspective. Do you think that that tension played a role when you were a youngster? Maybe that incites you even more to go into the field that is forbidden, so to speak. No, absolutely. That's true. Uh, You know, I had an open relationship with my father. It's just not that he he was not uh, the kind that he he thought all of this is totally dangerous or whatever. But the whole uh, tradition was saying that, really. And uh, it's true. And I wrote a book... uh, uh, 10 years ago, um, Esotericism and the Academy, uh, in which I basically try to describe the process uh, in which um, all this stuff has been rejected, marginalized, excluded as something you're not supposed to take seriously and so on. And I uh, argue there that, yeah, Protestantism played a very major role there. So um, not just not just Calvinism, but of course, uh, Lutheranism as well. But the whole Protestant movement tried to exclude 
and reject this kind of stuff as dangerous, demonic, and so on and so forth. And this was picked up yeah. later by the Enlightenment as well. So, so I've described it at length, and you're absolutely right. Um, the experience I had was not just that nobody talks about this, but also this notion this is forbidden, and uh, you're not mm -hmm. supposed to talk about it. Yeah, and I was not going to uh, listen to that. Uh, I mean, the more people tell me that uh, I'm not supposed to take this seriously, the more curious I get. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, well, I know the feeling. Yeah, so there's certainly <laughs> this, this, this rebellious uh, aspect, absolutely. And I think I've kept that up to the present. I, I'm mm -hmm. always to the yeah. moment, to the present, I'm always most interested in looking at uh, what other people tell me you are not supposed to look at. I'm always interested in, uh, in precisely that. Mm. And I find, I, I find it important also to, yeah, to look beyond what, what the culture tells you. you yeah. Look at. Yeah. yeah. And now that the, that question about Protestantism, that leads me to another question, because uh, it has always fascinated me that, um, let's say, that's a cultural background, which Hermeticism is in Europe. And you mentioned Ficino, so it's a Renaissance revival, so to speak, of, 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 of something and has had its roots here in Central Europe and Italy, you may yeah. say, and suddenly at some point in the 20th century, or maybe even a little earlier already in, uh, with the revival in the late 19th century, has moved to the Anglo-Saxon countries very much. Um, I started this podcast even for the reason I wanted to revive a bit also the European audience, but 85% of my listeners are in North America. So um, I don't mind, I'm happy about that, but it's interesting that now Nowadays, all that European background seems to have moved very much to the Anglo-Saxon countries. Is that maybe related? I have never thought yeah. about it like that, but could that be related to that Protestant background, yeah. which creates protesters in well, itself? I think it also has to do maybe with other things that, uh, of course, your podcast mm -hmm. is English. And um, uh, but yeah. um, I noticed, for instance, in Germany, um, uh, well, I, you know, quite apart from the fact that many Germans prefer to listen to German rather than English, as I've noticed, uh, even academics. But uh, there's also a lot of, yeah, a special kind of resistance against this in Germany. Um, and I mm -hmm. think in France also in a different way, in Italy. Uh, but I think in all these cases, yeah, there's the, there's the native language themselves. And then there is the mm -hmm. English debate about it. And yeah, so I'm not sure whether esotericism has moved towards uh, the Anglo English speaking sphere. But I certainly think that in English, there is not enough knowledge about what happens in countries with other languages. So I think uh, English okay, speakers yeah, don't know enough about true. what happens in Germany and not to mention this uh, or in France or in uh, Italy. France, Italy, yeah, Italy very clearly. I think this is an, uh, this is a culture of its own. They speak their own language. They speak Italian to uh, other Italians. And mm. Uh, mm -hmm. English usually don't know about it. And not to mention, uh, not to mention Eastern Europe, for instance. That's another question. Or uh, Scandinavia. Of course. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and the other question that you touched in that biographical overview, so to speak, um, you said you were never 
personally interested in practicing and I, I believe that and uh, on the, but I turn the question around you now as a, as a scholar um, do you think that somebody who is a practitioner can also be a good scholar or is he or she too much influenced by the prejudice of the practice so to speak no i don't i i see absolutely no conflict there and i you know i know many uh, many scholars uh, you know excellent scholars that are very important uh, friends of mine uh, are not friends of mine but uh, people who are doing very important work in scholarship who have some kind of practitioner's background uh, themselves. Sometimes they speak about it, sometimes times they don't. If I just may, may mention the most obvious example close to me, uh, uh, you know, the pioneering scholar of esotericism is Antoine Fevre. Uh, yeah, the French scholar who was the, had the first chair in the, at the Sorbonne in Paris about esotericism. He died last year, uh, and uh, so he recently deceased. Uh, he was a very good, a very close friend of mine. And um, so I knew him very well. I just published an article about the life and the development of Antoine Fevre, and he was a practitioner. There is no doubt about it. Oh, yes. Really? Uh, but mm -hmm. um, uh, he was very clearly a practitioner. He was a Freemason, first of all. Uh, there's no secret about it. He is very uh, open about it. And um, he was uh, involved in particular in a specific Christian um, theosophical movement, the uh, Rite Ecossais Rectifié uh, of, of, uh, of yeah, Villa Bose, yeah, et cetera. Uh, which is very important mm -hmm. in France in Freemasonry, and so this is this is a tradition that he has written about as a scholar, very important fundamental books, and That's he was true, a practitioner yeah. himself. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. for a long time, he did not advertise that very much. He did not deny it either, but he, he did not highlight it himself. But uh, it is very clear, and I think Anton Fevre could just stand as an example that you can be a great scholar mm -hmm. and uh, at the same time a practitioner. And also you can be a great scholar about the very tradition that you are involved in yourself. Uh, what is required is that you are able, obviously, to uh, distance yourself to some extent and put on the hat of the scholar uh, when you write as a scholar. But that's it. That's it. Um, so, yes, there is no problem. Right, right. Well, you have been personally instrumental in changing what happened to the experience that you made when you were uh, writing your thesis or as a youngster. We are about the same age, so we have lived through the same years, basically, as youngsters. And I uh, can only confirm without the same knowledge that you have, but that uh, those things were not known. You asked people and Nobody had an idea. You had to find out yourself. That has become much easier nowadays, but not, well, of course, also in publications, which are popular publications, websites, podcasts, stuff like that, but in the academic field. And uh, I think you have been really instrumental to that, um, to create an academic scholarly environment for the study of esotericism. Um, what, well, what incited you to that? You almost told us already, but how did that happen? How did you make people aware, people who needed to give the money, who needed to be there to, to support that? How did that uh, all happen? Yeah, <clears throat> no, it's true. Um, it, it is, you know, I think by the mid 1990s. So that was about at a time when I started to really get into the field. I defended my dissertation in 1995. Um, by the time 
that is something that the younger scholars also in the field sometimes forget. It is so obvious that now if you if you're scholarly active, um, well, you write a good book about an esoteric topic and you get it published with an academic publisher, and there's no problem about that. And uh, scholars are uh, publishers are not going to tell you, oh, this is a weird topic, and we don't want to be associated with that. If the scholarship is good, mm -hmm. they will publish it just like anything else. It's just a question question of uh, academic quality. That is so totally obvious to scholars, younger scholars now, that they forget how it was in the 1990s. It wasn't like that. Um, and so many uh, excellent uh, earlier scholars, and people like Jocelyn Godwin or uh, you know Nicholas Goodrich Clark, who had its had to chair in Exeter, and of course Antoine yeah, Van, etc. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, so. So the publishing possibilities were uh, limited, and very often you publish, uh, academic publishers would say no, uh, and so you would be forced to publish your stuff with uh, popular, uh, you know, publishers. Sometimes esoteric publishers, and so uh, and um, and that has changed. And so basically, what happened is that. Um, well, you know, by the mid 1990s, I was getting involved with these scholars, uh, Antoine Fevre and I worked together a lot. Other people like uh, Rolf van den Broek here in the Netherlands, a Gnosticism specialist mm. that I worked a lot with and so on. And we realized, I mean, this is ridiculous. Uh, there is uh, so much to be done in this field, so much unknown. Uh, um, and we need to create, uh, you know, academic frameworks uh, for, for you know, bringing this stuff out there. For so we must have academic journals. We must have book series. Publishers must start getting interested in this. We must have conferences uh, on these topics, academic conferences, and so on. And none of that existed, or hardly. Uh, so yeah, we started systematically to. Uh, try to take initiatives uh, that began in 1995, actually. Uh, Antoine Fevre and I organized a large conference in uh, Mexico City, and that was part of the International Association for the History of Religions, which is the World Organization for Study of Religion. Mm -hmm. And it's really, it's hard to imagine now, but we needed to get special letters of recommendation from, um, from uh, professors who had a big reputation who would stand in for us and say, these people are not idiots. They are not new agers. They are not, they are actually legitimate scholars. So you can trust them. You can let them organize a session in your conference. I mean, uh, 10 years later, that would, that, that has become, that had, had become completely obvious. Uh, but at that moment, it was really, we really had to overcome this boundary. Um, so yeah, so that's so basically uh, Antoine and I agreed that the there's uh, it's very simple. Uh, the only re the only way in which you're going to get esotericism established as an academic subject is by demonstrating high quality. Uh, so setting the standard high, the bar was often not high enough. There was too much uh, wishy-washy kind of so-so um, scholarship. And if sure. scholars of esotericism aren't good enough, uh, then that is bad for the reputation of the field. So we have to uh, raise the bar. We have to show this is the quality uh, that we want to uh, represent. And once we do that, then the rest will follow. And then, uh, you know, your colleagues will be uh, convinced. And that's exactly what happened. 
you know, a very important aspect of the moment in that was uh, we published a very large uh, dictionary, the Dictionary of Gnosis and Western Esotericism. It got published in 2005, 1200 pages uh, or, or more, what is it? Well, <laughs> very, very large. I think it's all, I think it's almost 1400. Yeah, yeah. and it was, it so, yeah, 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 with, uh, with many, many scholars, many, many, uh, you know, topics about all top, you know, uh, about the whole field of esotericism. And our uh, goal was very simple uh, to show, uh, this is there, this exists. This, these are the main topics as we saw it at that moment. And, uh, we want to show you can discuss this at a high scholarly level in a way that uh, does not look like some esoteric apologetics. It doesn't look like a new age or trying to uh, or something try to sell their stuff and 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 behave like academics. No, this is really actual academic stuff on a high level. That is what we wanted to show, and that's what we did. And I think so by doing this and then publishing a journal, RES started in 2001, published by Brill Publishers and other things like this. If you just make sure that your stuff is good and uh, then, then scholars are convinced. I remember one particular case, which is funny now that um, I, I'm not going to mention names, uh, but um, and a very well-known scholar of religion in America who had a reputation for being, you know, a hard-headed kind of positivist the guy who didn't want any nonsense or any, uh, you know, really no nonsense, hard positivist, rationalist kind of scholar of religion, uh, who would naturally, these kind of people naturally tended to have an enormous prejudice against people who are studying esotericism. They would think these people mm, have agendas sure. and they are not really scholars, etc. Well, I remember I went to the large conference in the AAR, the American Academy of Religion. He was there. And he had the Dictionary of Gnosis and Western Esotericism with him. He had bought it uh, at the bookstall there and he was reading it in the evenings. And he kept coming up to me and said, Walter, this is so fantastic. This is so great and uh, wonderful. And he was completely convinced. Why? Not because he believed any of this stuff. He didn't believe it. He found it in terms of contents. He found it nonsense, but because the scholarship was good. And, uh, and, and because he thought, hey, now I finally learned something about these things that I can trust. Uh, I can trust, I can read this, and I can learn something about stuff I never knew about. So that's what we did. That is what it was all about, high standards. And, um, and then a second step maybe point that I should mention in this professionalization process is, um, yeah, an enormous, uh, yeah, uh, let's say a surprise that happens. And that really changed everything. Um, that is in, um, in 1997, uh, I was a postdoctoral uh, researcher. I was, I didn't know whether I would have a future in academia. Uh, and at, at that moment, suddenly, um, there was this, this event. There was a millionaire, a Dutch woman, Rosalie Boston, who, um, um, announced her that she wanted to uh, create a chair, an academic chair for, um, for what she called history of hermetic philosophy and related currents. And um, right. that was unheard of. Uh, so basically a chair for the field. Um, uh, she didn't know me. She didn't uh, know the work of Antoine Fevre either at first. 
but she was deeply interested in hermeticism and related things. Uh, she was a kind of a private scholar, and uh, but she was a businessman, a woman, a businesswoman with an, uh, was very wealthy, and so yeah, she. Uh, it, so the end of the story was that she um, donated a very substantial amount of money to a foundation which signed a contract with the University of Amsterdam and created the yeah the possibility for a full professorship, two associate professors, uh, two PhD students, and a secretarial staff. Recently, it has been expanded with two more uh, as um, um, mm-hmm. professor positions. So now it's five people and a secretary and two PhD students. Um, yeah, and that began in 1999. And yeah, it has been the, yeah, let's say the miracle and the wonder of my life that I I got elected on the chair. And so uh, in 1999, and this was something nobody could have expected just a few years earlier. This was just yeah. a miracle. In my own city of birth, Amsterdam, a chair like this comes into existence. This has been very important because uh, Rosalie Boston did not just make this uh, chair possible. This chair made it possible for us to start educating new generations of scholars. And of course, we insisted on high quality. We wanted to have a good historical basis. And that's what we've been doing. And because the chair was there, uh, this became an example which uh, convinced other universities to now come over the bridges again as, as, uh, as well. If in Amsterdam there is a program in a major university, then it's safe Good, for yeah. us to try something similar. So you get, an, uh, so you get a kind of a uh, domino effect. And the, this very much helped the, you know, the professionalization of the field. And uh, now let's take the usual musical break. Um, the break, which happens a bit earlier than in the middle of the interview, actually, the second part is much longer. It's uh, almost 50 minutes, the second part of the interview that you're going to hear. Um, but here, Mr. Hanniglaf Voter got a very urgent phone call. So we had to cut for a moment. And I thought, well, that maybe would be a natural moment to put our musical break here. And well, as I said, when I asked Walter, he is a musician himself, what he wanted to hear uh, as another piece, he said, well, anything by Bach. Okay, and what a good idea. So uh, we're going to hear a symphonia, a symphonia, which is normally the end, the starter to, a, to another larger longer piece with singers etc but not in this case uh, we don't know why Bach wrote this Sinfonia which is uh, his opus 1045 well opus Bach Werke verzeichnis it's BWV it's called 1045 um, 1045 you see how much he wrote um, just a Sinfonia with violin solo um, and it is being played by Netherlands Bach Society well we have a Dutch person here as our guest, so it's also a Dutch orchestra who we're going to hear. Okay, after that we return for a long second part of the interview. Very, very interesting again. And after that, well, that's a piece, a guitar piece. You have had, had Master Wilburn Burchette here already twice at least uh, on these episodes because I think his kind of psychedelic way of treating the guitar um, is it, very fascinating. And we've had, as I said, other pieces by him already on this show. And today, well, as Wouter 
is or was a guitar player in the beginning. He, I thought he would certainly appreciate this very esoteric guitar music by Wilbur Burchett. The piece we hear here today is called Piercing the Psychic Heart. So, Netherlands Bach Society will play Bach's Sinfonia 1045. After that, we return to Walter Honigraf. And uh, in the end, we, after the interview, will hear Wilbur Burchett with Piercing the Psychic Heart. And after that, of course, a little announcement for next week. Enjoy.
so sometimes those things just happen because they have to happen, as it seems, as Hermes Trismegistos tells us also in his writings, of course. Exactly. Um, but it was also the, the creation of ESSWE, I believe, that was very, very instrumental to the to yeah. to to making that all more known. And you were you were a part of that as well. Yeah, certainly. That's true. Um, yeah, SWE, so the European Society for the Study of Western Esotericism. Uh, was founded in 2005 uh, in the residence of the same uh, person, Rosalie Boston, by the way. So you oh, see yeah. again how this goes. Eh? So you meet people, yes. <laughs> one thing comes, uh, comes from another. We had a meeting at her residence and with uh, quite a lot of scholars. And basically on the spot, we decided, hey, isn't it time to start some kind of organization? And we hadn't prepared this, but it came up spontaneously and we, you know, we um, appointed ourselves as the board, basically, and then we started organizing this society. And um, yeah, this has worked very well. It has become a success, I have to say. Uh, so we have been organizing conferences in European uh, cities since 2007. So the first time was in Tübingen in Germany. And then uh, every two years we had one. This last year there was a postponement because of the pandemic um mm. so it was a year later in cork in ireland and now this year we will have one in malmö in um in uh, right. sweden and yeah. yeah so this and yeah the sw has been fantastic it has been developed into a very yeah a very lively community of uh, of scholars of all ages i mean we have younger students we are very welcoming to students as well also to give papers etc and uh, what's very nice about SWE, uh, what I, I particularly like about it is that uh, you see the emergence of all these networks. Uh, so you have the mm -hmm. SWE as the kind of the mothership, so to speak. And then you have, for instance, um, uh, there is a network for, um, for, um, for Eastern European scholars of religion who organized their own their own uh, conferences independently with languages that uh, may not be accessible to, to many Anglophone scholars. They do their own thing, but they are a network that is connected to the ESWI. You have a network about esotericism in antiquity, for instance, they do their thing. Another one about arts, another one about gender uh, recently, uh, and so on and so forth. So we have this kind of mothership and we have all these networks that is, uh, that's, that, that, that keep developing because people want to specialize in, in particular directions mm -hmm. connected to esotericism. And this makes, this makes it very, uh, lively and, uh, dynamic. Uh, yeah. So right. it's wonderful. It's, uh, I've been extremely it, it, happy. It's great. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> You, you said, of course, yes, um, the traditional religion, you mentioned that yourself, are also religious uh, scholars, uh, were at some point, or maybe still are, partly opposed to Hermeticism in general, also the practice, not only the scholar, right. the scholar research, but also the practice. And then uh, when Enlightenment came, and I think I understood that between the lines also you saying that, but it's also my point of view, Enlightenment at some point then rejected everything that was religious and at the same time took again the spiritual approach that Hermeticism had and rejected it as well. And so at some point, um, science became 
as you very clearly demonstrated, opposed to researching in that field because that can't be serious. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so exactly. um, it's like two millstones. So this hermetic philosophy and all its children, of course, not only hermetism yep. in the pure sense, yep. um, became like between two millstones uh, um, and and enclosed there and couldn't develop itself. Um, would you also see it like that? And how has, the, in what respect and has that changed? Or how, how can we even further change it? What do we have to do to get out of that, those millstones? Yeah, it's a, it's a slow process. Uh, I, I think it has changed. It's true. Uh, after the enlightenment i think during the 19th century those are basically the dark ages of um of uh, academic scholarship and esotericism there's it drops completely out of the academy and then in the in the 20th century there's a slow movement of recovering it again and there are you know there are movements like the eronos circle in uh, switzerland uh, yeah. with all these great scholars who are interested in these things uh but basically it gets off again in really in the 1990s, uh, you know, in spite, oh, yeah, of, in spite yeah, yeah. of these pioneers like Favre and Jocelyn Godwin and, and, and a few other, other names. And um, yeah, what, how we, can, we, can we promote it further? Um, I mean, I'm just talking here about, about the scholarly uh, side of things, sure. uh, about, uh, about the academic side. And well, I think it is developing very well. Um, it is there. It, I mean, the battle for recognition has been won. Uh, there is no problem anymore. Uh, nobody, no academic uh, organization tells you to go outside because you, <laughs> it will chase you outside because you're studying esotericism. It is that there is no longer any problem. Um, what you see is that there are yeah constantly new approaches, new new perspectives coming up. Uh, so. We started uh, very much by thinking of esotericism as an historical uh, phenomenon from antiquity to the present. Uh, so we took a largely an historical approach, text-based approach. Nowadays, you have, of course, all these different approaches like, uh, for, for instance, gender studies. Uh, you have uh, excellent work by Manon Hedenborg-White, for instance, who is a uh, yes. professor yeah. now in... In, in Sweden and is a gender Sweden, specialist yeah. and uh, looking at, uh, for instance, at Crowley and, uh, and Crowley related uh, issues from the, from the, through the lens of gender. That's one example. And there are many other of these, uh, these new approaches. You have um, an increasing inf uh, interest in race at the moment, which is of course very much in the air uh, everywhere. And for instance, um, you know, years ago, one of my students, uh, Justine Bakker, uh, was studying in Amsterdam, was uh, studying the Nation of Islam, which is an important uh, movement in America. And uh, I have to say, I was not aware of how strongly esoteric the worldview of that Nation of Islam was. I learned that from her. And, uh, and I learned, hey, there is this whole, this whole, this whole, all these networks and context of uh, black esotericism. Uh, that in America, which I didn't know about, and I realized that um, this had been understudied and not given enough attention. So that's another, that's just, just one other example, something new that comes up and so on. So there are many of these um, new developments in, 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 uh, in the academy at the moment, which, uh, which uh, look from certain theoretical perspectives at esotericism and ask questions that uh, have not been asked by previous scholars. 
So these are all developments. Another thing that I personally find very interesting and important, uh, that's my own uh, you know, take on this, is consciousness studies. Uh, yeah. There is a lot of, there is uh, cognitive studies, a, a lot of people are, you know, dealing with uh, the, how the brain works and the neurological patterns and those kind of things. And um, that's really the hard science kind of perspective. Um, but I also think that uh, if you look at esotericism, at the uh, history of it, then what strikes me is that uh, so much of it has to do with alterations of consciousness, of con or altered states of consciousness, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. states, visions, hearing, uh, hearing voices, doing rituals that bring you in a different kind of state of consciousness and so on and so forth. And I've, I've become in, interested in this increasingly over the last 10, 15 years. And so I think there's an enormous um, domain to be explored about if you look from the perspective of the study of consciousness, including psychology and maybe transpersonal approaches or cognitive approaches, all these things, uh, and you look at esotericism, then you'll find that, in my view, that so much of what esotericism is really all about is not just a matter of doctrines or of uh, ideas uh, uh, or uh, theories or philosophies, etc. but a lot of it is practical and is experiential. Uh, so doing certain things and having certain experiences, sometimes very, very powerful, uh, experience of, you know, visions, gnosis, mm. you know, whatever if you want to call it. And I think this is, um, I personally think this has enormous potential for the study of esotericism, partly uh, on the one hand for uh, asking consciousness related questions to esotericism. So it is focusing on mm -hmm. that uh, rather than just on doctrines and ideas. And on the other hand, uh, by make, uh, by making the relevance of esotericism research clear to uh, scholars in other disciplines. So you can actually tell psychologists, hey, we have something to offer that you don't know. Uh, you, can, right. you can tell cognitive scholars, scholars, look at our stuff. Uh, we have all these materials and you haven't been looking at it. So this way you can, uh, you can build bridges between the study of esotericism mm -hmm. and yeah. um, consciousness-oriented uh, forms of Absolutely. research. And I may add, you also build bridges to the practicing community, the non-scholarly practicing community, yeah. because you you create new views on the matter uh, that have not been followed so far. And I'm especially glad that you mentioned all those other fields as well, the consciousness field, but also the gender question, the, the question about uh, Islam, the question about uh, black spirituality, which... Uh, it has been very white male dominated, of course, uh, the, 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 the history of the history yeah. of the esotericism in the West yes. and, and to open it in all kinds of fields, if scholar, scholarly, but at the same time, practically, that can be uh, a big advantage for everyone. In, in yeah, health, and, 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 and for me, it is also a very natural thing to do because uh, you know, the way that I think about esotericism, I describe it as a rejected knowledge. That is my technical mm -hmm. term. It is all this stuff mm -hmm. that has been rejected since the enlightenment and put in a dustbin of history, so to speak, the stuff we don't look at, that we don't take seriously and so on. But um, once you are interested in rejected knowledge or in the stuff that people don't look at, 
and you want to take it seriously, you also have to do this in uh, when you have the field of esotericism, look in, at which dimensions of esotericism have we not looked at as scholars of esotericism. And um, yeah, so this question, for instance, uh, I have, um, yeah, I just finished this book about hermetic spirituality, which is about the hermetic movement in the first centuries of the common era. Yes. And, and you see the same things about um, this, yeah, this white dominance, huh? uh, this idea that they are old, all, uh, well, old white men huh, who have created yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, this is, exactly. and uh, from an historical point of view, this is extremely questionable to begin with. Absolutely. Uh, simply think about the fact that, um, so we stereotypically, uh, we think of the great founder of Neoplatonism, Plotinus, right? Uh, well, we think of him as an, Greek philosopher and Greek philosophers we associated with Greece, etc. He was teaching in Rome. Okay, that all looks very, uh, you know, stereotypically Western. And we simply forget the fact that he was an Egyptian, that he came from Egypt. Uh, he, he had his studies in, 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 in uh, Alexandria. Um, and, and also, if you look at, look at so many uh, intellectuals in, this, in those first centuries, church fathers, for instance, also, uh, so many came from Northern Africa, from Egypt, from the, from the whole range of Northern Africa, from Syria, etc. So, of course, we do not know what they look like. Uh, so uh, we only have this kind of icons, uh, this kind of stereotypical stories with the halos and all that. Uh, so we don't know. Uh, but I think from this point of view also, esotericism has been much more diverse than we uh, traditionally tended to, uh, to realize. And I think this is fascinating. This is, this, this, this is really interesting to look at also in terms of, um, kind of ingrained prejudices, uh, that we have in the way that we approach, uh, Western or European culture. So this idea, this is something I've been emphasizing in this book I just mentioned. Um, our very strong uh, emphasis on Greece and Greek philosophy and those kind of things. This idea that, well, basically, uh, the, well, the light of civilization has started to shine from Greece eh? with the with, uh, yeah. with Plato, yeah. with, yeah. with the Platonic philosophers, and so um, you know, it it is uh, actually this happened at the expense of uh, the Orient and the Orient often meant uh, Egypt and so many of the stuff, so much of the stuff that is central to esotericism doesn't come from Greece, but, uh, or not just from there, but comes from Egypt and comes from the Orient as it was known at the time from the Middle East, etc. Um, so there is this kind of, um, technically we call it Phil Hellenism. Eh? So the love of all things. Greek. Yeah. So this Phil Hellenist, uh, prejudice, which uh, highlights everything that is associated with Greek rationality and philosophy and just marginalizes or pushes away everything that is associated with the Orient, with Egypt, with superstition and magic and darkness and all this kind of thing. You know, Egypt, Egypt as the heart of darkness and then Greece as the beacon of light, you know, that kind of opposition. Yeah. Now, if you study esotericism, you have to take Egypt very seriously and you have to question those kind of prejudices about Western culture. 
So yeah, uh, of course, the, the term Hellenistic is a very good marketing because because um, as you just said, uh, Hellenism in such basically happened in uh, in Africa and uh, in North Africa and in East in in West um, in West Asia, exactly. uh, um, uh, and and it was just by Alexander the Great and his. Yep his marches through the countries that uh, yeah. it became the name Hellenistic. And I think it was picked up late, later on by the Western traditions as Hellenistic and therefore calling it Greek. But yeah, exactly. as you said, it comes from many other places, including, would you also include Persia in that tradition oh, yeah, and that feeding into the tradition? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would certainly include it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm happy you mentioned that book because I wanted to get to your latest book, which is Hermetic Spirituality. I'm afraid I have only read parts of it. I have not have it in hand yet. Um, and, and I have read articles about it. And so I saw an interview with you about it. So my information is um, second hand, so to speak. No problem. But there is this book is uh, to what I know about it is opening exactly on the field that you just mentioned on the field of the then practitioners of the people who then were actually the ones who practiced yes. what we call hermeticism or hermetism. Absolutely. Um, can, can you maybe delve a little bit into that to give the uh, listeners a bit of an idea about your approach to that yes. subject? Because especially to practitioners, as many of them are, it yeah. might be interesting to see your view on that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll be happy to do that because it's true. Uh, I've noticed, um, uh, I mean, the book came out in the summer and uh, so I, there haven't been many or any, uh, I think, academic reviews yet, but I see, I've seen that a lot of um, people are writing about it uh, who are more uh, more involved in practitioner's perspective. So apparently Absolutely. there's an interest there, which I'm very happy about. And it's true because the emphasis, the whole agenda of the book is to say this hermetic movement, uh, uh, you know, which produced the corpus hermeticum, the hermetic literature in the first century, so to come an era, the whole argument is that this was not hermetic philosophy. And uh, uh, when you use the word philosophy, then you think of what we understand as philosophy. And I'm arguing this is not what it was. I call it hermetic spirituality. And, um, and what I mean is that this was not a movement of people who were some sort of stereotypical armchair philosophers trying to figure out difficult uh, philosophical or metaphysical questions and then writing treatises about them. That is how they have been read mostly. Uh, no, these mm -hmm. were uh, practitioners. Uh, so there was, there were small networks. I think, I think it was a small movement actually. I think there, that the movement was probably smaller than you would think if you look at the number of texts that were produced. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, it was a movement that was flying under the radar. If it had been large enough, then outside observers would have written about it, but uh, nobody wrote about it. All we have is the text. So they were very discreet. They met in probably in temple sanctuaries, maybe at home, uh, maybe in the deserts, and they had a spiritual practice, uh, which was basically focused on how to liberate your mind from the delusions of the cosmos. And what is meant was that when you, when you get born in the cosmos, when you get born in a body, your mind, uh, is literally falls in an altered state, in an altered state of consciousness in a very little sense. Yeah. So, so yeah, yeah. yeah, so the soul, uh, before it's, uh, incarnates in the body, 
is has pure pure perfect consciousness it sees reality as it really is and then it comes under the sway of the cosmos it's it's descends through the seven planetary spheres it finally gets born in a body and by that time uh its consciousness is clouded and confused and we start getting getting addicted to all these uh, phantasms all this 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 mental imagery that is deluding us and that is uh that makes us run into circles and behind illusionary pursuits, et cetera, et cetera. And instead of seeing reality as it really is, uh, that is, that's basically the foundation of the hermetic literature. So these practitioners, mm -hmm. what they were all about, it was about how to liberate your mind from these delusions and how to, um, break the spell of, um, of these delusions and, and return to the crystal clear consciousness that we had before we incarnated to the body. Now, uh, one way of doing this yeah. is actually, um, uh, what they said, I mean, in the, when you talk about hermetica, everybody always thinks it's always that it's all about gnosis, about higher knowledge, a perfect knowledge. And gnosis is very important in the hermetica, no doubt about it. But what I found, um, is that these were really people who were, trying to be good persons, uh, good people. And, um, mm -hmm. that was the most important thing. There's one particular passage in the Hermetica where it says that, uh, you know, the gods are willing to forgive everything. They are very generous and they know that we are messing up all the time. They don't say it like that, but that's how I paraphrase it now. You know, they, they know that people are weak. Uh, we are messing up all the time. We make mistakes. Yes, we, uh, the gods are generous, but there's one thing that I cannot forgive. And that is lack of reverence, irreverent behavior. So a lack of respect or awe or reverence for the beauty and the splendor of reality, uh, for as it has been created by God. So the idea is that we are living in this fantastic world full of beauty and splendor. And it all comes from the great divine source. And, uh, this is the continuous gift of life and light that is, that we continuously keep, uh, keep receiving from the great divine source. It's fantastic. This is a great gift. And, um, so yeah, we, it, uh, if you cannot have an attitude of gratitude and reverence and, you know, gratitude for all the gifts that you've been given. Yeah, that is really a problem. So the, so the virtue that you had to cultivate was reference in Greek, Aisebeia, that was the technical term. And if you had that, then after death, after death, you would find your way back to the realms of light. That would be okay. okay. But, and this is what the practitioner point uh, comes in, um, for very dedicated, uh, uh, followers of the way of Hermes, a small elite, people who really wanted to work hard, it was possible to get there already before you died. Um, of course, you had to live with Aisebeia, all of that was uh, fundamental, but then you could, it was possible to achieve rebirth. And Hermetica is basically all about uh, the spiritual rebirth, how to be born again. That's octuad, nonad and steps, right? Yes, well, uh, mm -hmm. that comes later, actually. That actually comes later. So the argument I make is that um, yeah, not to get too technical, but there is the, 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 the 13th treatise in the Corpus Hermeticum, one of the most famous ones about rebirth, mm -hmm. which, uh, mm -hmm. tells the story of how the pupil Todd gets, um, 
liberated from the dominance of the cosmic powers. So basically his mind has come under the domination of the cosmic forces that keep him in chains and that keep him ignorant. Uh, and these are described as tormentors. So the inner demons, the diamonds actually that have yeah. taken uh, possession of your body and your soul and that keeps you from seeing reality as it really is. So in the Corpus Amaticum 13, the pupil uh, gets into a trance state. You have an altered state again. And then Hermes Trismegistus uh, literally exorcises those dark demonic powers out of his body. There are 12 of them linked to the Zodiac. All 12 of them are uh, driven out. They're driven out by the powers of light, which come from the 10 levels of the Hermetic Cosmos. And then this, mm -hmm. these forces of life take the place of the tormentors uh, permanently, uh, really permanently, and they weave themselves into a new body of light, which has uh, perfect consciousness, a perfect cos cosmic consciousness, which is able to see reality um, everywhere. So your consciousness is no longer limited to one particular time and place, but it's everywhere. And uh, there are these very poetic descriptions of this in Corpus Hermeticum 11, like I'm everywhere, I'm in heaven, I'm on earth, I'm, you cause your, ask your soul to travel to India, it will be there in a moment and so on and so forth. All right. So that is the state of cosmic consciousness that comes with the experience of rebirth, but then you are still in the cosmos. Uh, you're still in the cosmos. You have cosmic consciousness, but you're not beyond the cosmos. And in another treatise, that's the one you were, you were just referring to earlier, the Octawat and the Enneat, you see how the pupil um, who has been reborn already um, travels beyond the cosmos and attains the eighth sphere of the souls, the, the sphere right. of life, and then mm -hmm. uh, the ninth sphere of light, and then even gets a kind of a glimpse of the pega of the of the source of the, yeah, of the absolute source. Exactly. So yeah, yeah that yeah. is a fantastic. So, but you know, what you see there, and this is how I analyze it, and then I come back to your point, is that this is practice. This is experiential practice, and I try to find out sure. what were these people doing, what were they doing actually, and uh, and what were they experiencing, and um, yeah. you have this spectacular description of. Uh, description of mystical experiences of visions and all that. And that's at the center. It's the center of my book. What period are we talking about when we talk about those people? When would they have lived? Yeah, exactly. Roughly, I mean, we do not know exactly, but the texts come roughly from the second and the third century right. of the common era. So basically right. just, just before the takeover of Christianity in the fourth century. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the difficult thing is that many of those texts, we only know them through the Christian eyes, so to speak, people like Jamblichus, etc., who, who were Christians and saw them critical in their own way, right? Well, that's very interesting. I, well, Jamblichus was not a Christian. He was a pagan. Yeah, he was a pagan. And Jamblichus actually plays an important role in my uh, story because um, I think that Jamblichus was one of the practitioners. Uh, in the Hermetic. Oh, right. I really uh, interpret him as one of the practitioners and another okay. and another one is Zosimos, the founder of, uh, of alchemy. Uh, I'm convinced that these people were directly involved in this way of Hermes. They were doing these things. But it's true that um, in the reception history, you know, these texts were floating around in Egypt. Then in the fourth century, uh, Christianity becomes the dominant religion, of course. This stuff is seen as pagan, idolatrous, and wrong. 
uh, etc. Uh, uh, you know, Augustine writes a very famous, you know, uh, chapter against the, you know, the idolater uh, Hermes Trismegistus. Yeah. And yeah, but what happens, and I find that's important, is that these texts, um, yeah, get, get transmitted by scribes who uh, copy them by hand in monasteries in, uh, in, in Byzantium, in the Eastern Empire, Eastern part of the empire. And these are Christians. And I do think we have to take very seriously that, um, you know, so you are a Byzantine uh, priest and you are copying manuscripts. There is an overwhelming number of manuscripts, many more than you can possibly mm -hmm. copy. You have to make choices because there, were, there was much. And you have to copy. So what are you going to copy? You're not going to copy texts that are blatantly pagan and idolatrous. Uh, why would you do that? Because it's wrong and it's, di it's demonic and the church uh, forbids it. Uh, why would you transmit it? You're not going to copy it. So what you're going to copy is uh, texts that are philosophical, that seem uh, in line with Plato, because Plato is a respected mm -hmm. author. So if it looks a bit like that, then greater likelihood you'll copy it. Um, if you encounter stuff that you think is congenial to Christianity, all the more reason to copy it. And then when you do encounter, so you're copying it, and if you then encounter sentences that are I, that are heretical and uh, that you don't agree with big chance that you will correct administration justice and or that you will basically you read something you say oh they're actually talking about the trinity and so you're actually saying oh this is the son of god uh, uh, because that is what makes sense to you and so on so what i think has happened has happened is that um, these texts have gone through in what I call a kind of a narrow bottleneck of transmission mm -hmm. through Byzantium. Uh, we cannot trust the text that came out of it. We have to be very careful uh, because I think they have been, been contaminated to some extent by Christian uh, prejudice. Absolutely. And we shouldn't forget that the earliest manuscripts that we have come from the 14th century. So that is more than, an, um, more than a millennium after they were written. Uh, they all come from the 14th century and they go back to a kind of an original manuscript from the 11th century, which was damaged and in a bad state. So actually what we have is uh, just snippets like uh, what, uh, and we have to be very careful in drawing conclusions about it and not put all kind of Christian frameworks on yeah. them. So I'm trying to get back to the pagan uh, uh, movement that was behind it. And I try to look beyond the Christian prejudice and the uh, philosophical prejudice. I have a difficult question for you. I don't know if it can be answered anyway, but uh, do you have a, a view on what's the practice of those techniques? Let's call it like that, of this, the use of the, the altered state of consciousness. Um, um, nowadays, when people try to, to re-establish that through their own practices, through all kinds of golden dawn downwards, right? Um, what do, do you think can be done good for the world? I take a big word now, but how can that advance humanity, so to speak, if people practice it nowadays? Is there something that uh, in, in your view? Oh. Hmm. Oh, well, that's a big question. Uh, I think there are two, I, I heard two questions in a certain mm. way. One is the kind of practices. And um, 
And the other is what, yeah, what, what kind of contribution yes, can it make exactly. to the world, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think there are two good questions. I mean, the first question, what they were doing, I was, I'm trying whatever I can to find, to get as close as possible to the actual practice of these people. But I have to do it on the basis of the texts and the texts uh, leave uh, many mm -hmm. questions unanswered. Um, what is clear is that they had discovered powerful techniques of uh, inducing altered state. There is no doubt about it. Um, powerful techniques. And whether this uh, included certain meditational techniques, um, certainly it did. Uh, there may have been bodily practices that we are not informed about things that they actually did, but didn't write down because everybody knew mm -hmm. that, uh, that it had to do with that's a kind of typical thing. Um, I think there is some indirect ev evidence that might suggest that there are certain, uh, yeah, bodily practices, uh, you know, touching the body of the other person, laying on of hands, those kind of things. Maybe I sometimes see similarities with mesmeric techniques okay. like mesmerism mm -hmm. in the, uh, 19th century, but this, I say immediately, this is very speculative and I do not insist right. on it. It is, uh, but I think it's likely to assume that it was something like that. And, uh, there's also the element of were they using any kind of mind altering substances yeah. or not. Now there's no evidence in the Hermetica that they did absolutely mm -hmm. nothing. Um, there is a little bit of evidence in, um, in Jamlichus who actually uh, mentions potions or something to ingest uh, at one point twice. Uh, but that's it. And we do not know what it was. And I also have some discussion about um, similar kind of practices that you find in the Greek magical papyri in particular, right. uh, where you do find recipes for uh, substances, etc., which had an, clearly a very strong psychological mm -hmm. effect. And then there's also the question of uh, incense. Um, sure. People were, uh, they were burning uh, kufi incense, which had narcotic properties. So all of these things are small parts of, parts of the puzzle. So these kind of substances may have played a role, maybe, maybe not. I, about Hermetica, we have no direct evidence. I want to insist on that. Uh, meditational techniques, maybe bodily techniques, and maybe just stuff we don't know about, and we just have to speculate. I try to get as close as I can to that. Um, there's also, by the way, uh, in the Octawat and the Enyad, so this ascent of the soul beyond the cosmos to the eighth and the ninth sphere, uh, I've, uh, I've argued that are, they were actually singing. They were singing vowels, right. Greek vowels. They were, um, and I think there is something, maybe a meditational effect similar to chanting Om uh, and, yeah. and those kind of yeah. things. Something like that, and there, there's actually a musical uh, dimension uh, to this, which I've tried to show. So yeah, there are many questions. Now the question is, what good does it do us to uh, do these things? What I basically think, I've been very impressed by these texts. Uh, they are beautiful, they are wonderful, they are very inspiring. And I have to say that I find, um, on a personal level, I find this is a very inspiring worldview. Uh, so they are, they are basically telling us that, um, well, 
we have to free our mind from delusions, from phantasms, negative phantasms, negative passions that get hold of us and just keep us enslaved and those kind of things. And um, I think it's very, it would be very easy to um, make comparisons, for instance, with at this moment, how we are, all of us are being assailed on a daily basis by images through social media, through the internet, et cetera, uh, powerful images that addict us in all kinds of ways. So I, I talk about in the Hermetica about the psychology of addiction mm -hmm. and um, basically uh, what they you can interpret their techniques as a way to uh, 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 how to free yourself from mental addiction. That is basically what they're doing in these techniques. Right. And I think that is, a, that is a still relevant. I think we all fall under the spell right. of mental addiction all the time. And um, for, yeah, furthermore, I think their ethical views are wonderful. So the effort, the, uh, the emphasis on Isebeya, on reverence, is very congenial to the way that we should behave towards the environment, towards music, at, uh, music uh, towards yeah, nature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, at nature. Music uh, the environment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this this kind of basic attitude of gratitude, of wonder, of reverence, as they right. called it, um, this is something that we're missing. So I think they are given a very environmental an environmentally conscious, uh, in modern terms, a kind of approach to the natural world yeah. uh, that we are living in. They're telling us that uh, where things are going wrong in our world all the time, it is because we are enslaved by mental addictions. And they uh, say that it's possible to liberate yourself from that. And, they, uh, and that is what the path is all about. So I think all these things are commendable, inspiring, and very relevant uh, today. Of course, you cannot, uh, yeah, recreate this, 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 this rituals anymore because we know too little about them to recreate them. But we can take inspiration. Absolutely. That's right. And it's not uh, maybe a final thing. Um, at the very beginning of this conversation, you asked uh, about something about pra uh, practices, uh, practitioners' perspectives. I think in esotericism generally. I would say there are two main lines. There is, let's say, the magical direction, and there is the more direction based on gnosis, insight, wisdom, etc. And the Hermetica are not interested in magic. That is not uh, not not in the in, in this magic in the specific sense. It has something to do with power. Okay, that's uh, that sort of magic. They're not interested in that. Um, it's not about power. It's really about knowledge and understanding. Uh, it's really about how to understand uh, reality perfectly, how to live your life as responsible human beings in the world and how to achieve wisdom. Right. That is really right. their focus. Right. Yeah. We are, unfortunately, I must say, come, coming slowly to the end of our time here. Yeah, but I have yeah. two more questions that I would like to ask you, if I may. Um, one being... Um, you mentioned the gods, you have to be reverent, uh, reverent, uh, reverent to, to the gods and the word God and gods always turn up. Then yeah. we have, of course, the one, which is the term for yeah. this special state that is used in Hermeticism. And that creates yeah. with practitioners nowadays often this kind of um, tension. You have those who see it as a very Christian practice because it's a god. Then you have the pagan practice because it's gods. But you also have the yeah. 
I, w I don't know how to call that. Um, um, the one is the more important thing, especially, for example, Freemasons who very much believe in there's only one truth behind everything, for example. And w where do you think one should situate Hermeticism? Does it include all three? Or what's the God term in Hermeticism from your point of view? Ah, well, very, very happy that you asked the question because it's, I think it's, it's of key importance and somehow I haven't mentioned it yet. That is the concept of nous. The Greek word nous, uh, which is at the basis of words like noetic, etc. Yeah. And um, no, uh, and there's a very central argument in my book in which I say that we have to uh, learn a couple of new words uh, which have no equivalent in, in English. Well, to start with the word God, I actually make this point early on that, uh, yeah, when the, Greek, when, the, when the hermetic authors use the word God, then they do not have anything in mind that is similar to our Christian understandings of God. Uh, it is not a personal deity in that sense. It is certainly not somebody, uh, not a person who, uh, who punishes you for your sins. Uh, there is no concept of sin in the, uh, in the Hermetica, not at all. It's about ignorance, not about sin. And, um, and I, yeah, I do think that our, use of the word God is uh, overdetermined by centuries of Christianity. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I, I, whenever I have a chance, I avoid it. Um, I cannot always avoid it because it's not possible. But uh, where I can, I speak instead of God, I speak about the source. And, uh, and this is a hermetic yeah, uh, is, language yeah. because uh, the Greek word pege, uh, that means the source or the fountain uh, of reality. So yeah, whenever I can, I use that word. Now out of this source. So yeah, it's fascinating. This source itself is totally unknowable. It's just, so we have no idea what it is. So what Hermet and the Hermetica say it to themselves. We said they, we know what it does. It dispenses light and life constantly. Uh, everything that exists comes out of this source, but why it does it, where it comes from, uh, what it is in itself, we have no idea and we will never understand it. So there's this total mystery at the heart of reality, but out of it comes light. And that is the news. Uh, and that's the primary reality. And in most cases, when uh, the Hermetica talk about God, they actually mean the news. And the news is um, not a kind of personal deity. The news is universal light, universal light. And the, one argument I make here is that uh, Hermetica are radically, uh, radically non-dualistic. Mm -hmm. um, the radical metaphysical statement is that nothing really exists except, except light. Uh, the noose is the only true reality that actually exists. Everything that falls short of it is shadow and is not truly real. So even if we are sitting here talking with each other, we are not real. You are not real. I am not real. Nothing is not in an ultimate sense. The only thing that really exists is light, universal light, nothing else. And that is God. That is the news. And so that's very radical. And uh, so it's an extreme difference from traditional Christian notions of God as the creator of the world as separate from the world. Uh, the whole world is a manifestation of the source. And it's true essence is light. That's what yeah, they yeah. say. Light and life. 
Yeah. Thank you. That was very clear, very precise and really loved that. Thank you. Final question. Um, you wrote, and I will point our listeners to the article that you wrote in 2019, I believe. I'll put the link and I also put the link to your website. And of course, there are many interesting uh, things there. Uh, but you wrote that article was called Imagining the Future Study of Religion and Spirituality. And um, without right. now referring directly to that article, but how do you imagine today the future of study of religion, spirituality and hermeticism uh, by all means. What's what's why do you see it move? <laughs> oh, oh, well, um, yeah, firstly, I think that uh, as uh, I'm an historian of religion, I'm a scholar mm -hmm. of religion, but I think we have a bit of an um, PR problem, a bit of a publicity problem, because religion uh, if you're a scholar, a scholar of religion, then you know how diverse it really is. But uh, most people, the general audience, general public thinks religion, they associate it with churches, doctrines, and so on yeah. and so forth. And um, so as long as we keep using that term, people will keep thinking that we are theologians and that we're into uh, dogmatism and churches and those kind of things. That is not going to change anything. Religionists, um, so, speak, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah. So what I'm arguing is that um, that instead of re or next to religion, let's at least speak about spirituality as well. And spirituality, I think, can be understood simply as the more individual uh, dimensions of religion, which are focused on experiential practice. So individual, experiential and practical. So what to think what people do and what they experience rather than only what they believe and claim, because that's a Protestant Calvinist kind of idea. It's all about belief. Uh, I think religion and spirituality is not really about belief. It is about doing things and experiencing things. Um, so that's what I'm arguing. Uh, that is what you find in the Hermetica as well. It is uh, really a spirituality in that sense. And um, yeah, the future of all of this uh, I think that um, certainly in the study of, of study of these things, yeah, I think we have to, um, how to say that we have to uh, try to liberate ourselves a bit from the, yeah, from the Protestant heritage. Maybe I've been doing that all my life. I told you Sounds I started like with it, yeah. Protestantism and that maybe that has got me started, but I think we have to liberate ourselves from those prejudices. This idea, it's all about, about beliefs and doctrines, etc. I think uh, we have to realize that most people, normal, normal people don't actually work, uh, function like that. People have experiences that, uh, that affect our lives and that are important to them, that give value and meaning. And uh, you have the theologians who put it all into theolo theological doctrines. But for normal people, I think, that is less important. And we have to find ways, I think also as academics and as scholars, we have to find ways of reconnecting uh, in one way or another, in the way we write with uh, what people are actually doing in doing and experiencing rather than just talking to them about them. We also, also have to talk with them and understand better what people are actually doing. And I think we have a lot of work work to do as scholars in this regard because we are we we become too distant uh, by the way we write from um, what is actually going on on the ground, yeah, so to speak. Yeah. And I try to do that myself in my book as far as I 
can by adopting a certain style of writing. Uh, I try to avoid a kind of a distant kind of typical academic uh, style of writing. I try to write in a way which engages the reader. I hope I'm a bit successful in this, but I want to bridge this oh, yeah. gap. Yeah. Uh, yeah, between the distance academic and uh, people who are actually doing and yeah. experiencing. Yeah. I think it's very important. Thank you for doing that. And I, from the parts of the book that I read, I can only say, I think you did an excellent job with that. I do my best. <laughs> thank you so much for being here with us here today, for your time and for especially for your great insight and knowledge. Thank you for that. And it was great to have you. Well, uh, thank you very much for the opportunity. It's just, uh, I really enjoyed this. Uh, thank you. Bye thank for you now.
Wilbur Burchett, Piercing the Psychic Heart. Great. So I think this was a great, great interview and I'm very grateful once again. Thank you, Professor Walter Hanegraaff, for being with us here today and for sharing your knowledge and your kindness. And to me, I don't know about you guys, but to me it was quite also some surprising things which I did not expect to hear like that from him. And I really enjoyed that talk. Um, it was it was great to discover that great personality who has done a lot for the Western esoteric tradition, as you could hear. Once again, go on the show notes because you will find a few interesting links, not only to his personal website, but also to a few talks and things that he produced and which I think you should read. Good. Well, um, that was it for today. And of course, there is another episode next Sunday, episode 10. And I have to apologize that um, the episode that I announced last week for today is the one I announced once again for next week. It just had just that internal um, date problems with myself, not with my guests, but I had to change the interview dates. And so um, I had to exchange episodes 9 and 10, and you heard Walter Hanegraaff here today, and you will hear Richard Grossinger next week on thought forms and visualizations and much more. Very, very interesting personality as well. Um, I think we had a lot of interesting personalities here lately. I hope you get the same feeling as I do as interviewer. Okay. Well, that was it for today. Come back for Richard Grossinger next week. And um, hope you enjoyed. Uh, it was again great to do that episode for you. And I wish you a very good week until next Sunday. Um, take care. Stay tuned. Hear you soon.